Welcome back to the Birth Nurses Podcast. This is Shayna Brickner, and I am with my co-host, Liz Baker-Wade. Hey, Liz. Hi. How you doing? Good. How about you? I'm good. <laughs> so today, um, we're going to ask Liz some questions. She is so experienced in this field of labor and delivery. She's been a labor and delivery nurse for over 30 years. She... I started when I was 11. <laughs> Yeah, you're only 41. So. <laughs> and she is the owner of Birth and Beyond, which is a birth education organization. I like to call her a birth consultant, kind of like I'm a lactation consultant because I specialize in lactation, but she's a birth consultant because she specializes in birth. And if even if you don't think you need a birth consultant, I would argue that you do. <laughs> Even if it's your second baby, third baby, um, first, if you're wanting a V back after you had a previous mm-hmm. cesarean with your first baby, I love a V back. So helps to talk to someone who's been there and seen all of the things to know what to expect. And it doesn't necessarily mean you need a full six hour class with Liz. Right. She also can consult you in a shorter time frame and adjust her prices accordingly so don't be afraid to reach out to liz she is a wealth of knowledge and (laughs) um has so much great information to share and ways to help you have a smoother birth and delivery experience so please utilize liz as such an awesome resource um and today you're gonna yeah you're gonna hear from her um again she has seen it all in her um years of labor and delivery nursing on the west side of los angeles and today she wants to share some tips on how to avoid induction of labor so here we go liz Welcome to the Birth Nurses Podcast. I'm Shayna Brickner from Preparented, and I'm joined by my co-host Liz Baker-Wade from Birth and Beyond in Santa Monica. We are the Birth Nurses. In this podcast, we talk about birth and nursing practice and labor and delivery, and in a broader sense, the whole world of nursing too. From two women who have been on both sides of the birthing bed, we've got some things to talk about that will enhance your understanding of birth. Whether you're a first-time pregnant parent, a parent to one or more babies, or a professional in the birth world, this podcast is for you. Join me and Liz and special guests as we share and learn from each other here on the Birth Nurses Podcast. This is a subject near and dear to my heart. It is uh, giving me a lot of angst uh, in the last uh, 10 years, especially as the rate of unnecessary induction of labor has increased. Mm -hmm. Um, We have a lot of information about how an induction of labor can increase the rate of surgical birth and untoward outcomes, uh, increase morbidity and mortality. And I truly believe that we use this opportunity as a what if sort of preemptive strike to a what if, um, and that in my perfect world, we would have at this point, especially knowing our standards in developed nations for morbidity and mortality, we would not be 
so often driven, coerced, talked into induction of labor for non-cause. I want to make that first most important thing. There are plenty of good medical reasons for an induction of labor, Mm -hmm. plenty of good ones. Mm -hmm. And some of you, most of you maybe have heard of hypertension in pregnancy. If you are chronically hypertensive, high blood pressure, um, PIH, pregnancy-induced hypertension, also known as preeclampsia, absolutely 100% indicated for an induction of labor. The benefits of induction of labor far outweigh the risk of staying pregnant when you are hypertensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, Insulin-dependent diabetes, mellitus, that's gestational diabetes as well. Yep. Um, diabetics have more risk more risk of aging the placenta, more risk of a larger baby leading to a possible or potential for shoulder dystocia. That's when the baby's head comes out, shoulders get stuck. Low, low amniotic fluid or an abundance of amniotic fluid. Mm -hmm. These are just to name a few. So I just want to absolutely make it clear that when there are medical indications, I'm all in. Yeah, totally. Definitely, 100%. Would you say... Maybe I should say this later, but would you say mm-hmm. that because we have the technology that we do and the medical interventions that we do, mm-hmm. that we're treating low risk pregnant patients like they're high risk? Absolutely. I mean, one of the issues that is just so disappointing to me is that we're treating non disease. Right. Right. We have made pregnancy a pathology. Now, there's some studies and some people that say, you know, pregnancy is a pathology. But we have to look at timing, age of the mother, um, her comorbidities. We do have a lot more comorbidities than when we started. It's true. When I started uh, 32, I think I'm going into 33 years ago. Um, There are many more diagnoses, many more autoimmune conditions and diseases, which have evolved and taking on a life of their own. Yes, and of course, there's COVID and virus. Um, But comorbidities, there's many more women, um, patients on uh, a myriad of antidepressants, and there's thyroid disease, Mm -hmm. and much more hypertension. Maybe we're more stressed out. Our eating habits aren't as good as they should be in our 20s and 30s. So we're developing more comorbidities earlier in life added to the issue of advanced maternal age. Advanced maternal age in and of itself doesn't necessarily mean 32, 33-year-olds, but we see women who are 40, 42, 43 with comorbidities. You're going to see more intervention. But the non-disease is a healthy pregnant woman with a healthy pregnancy, a spontaneous pregnancy with very few or no comorbidities that we still feel compelled to intervene upon. And that is problematic for me. Yep. Same. Yeah. 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 So what's your first tip? How do we avoid induction of labor if we're low risk and we don't have any comorbidities? How do Mm -hmm. we avoid this? Well, of course, um, it goes without saying that you can choose a doctor with a low induction rate or a midwife. Yeah. Right? Yes. There's plenty of excellent midwives out there doing home birth, birth center birth. And there are plenty of midwives who are working with obstetricians 
who do what we call concurrent care. Mm-hmm. Right? Best of both worlds. Yeah. And you can, if you've chosen an OB, then be frank, direct, to the point. What's your induction rate and what are the reasons why? What are the top three or four reasons why you induce at 39 weeks? There's a study called the ARRIVE study. There's a very interesting evidence about this ARRIVE study and how it was written. Um, I get a lot of my information. Again, a shout out to Evidence-Based Birth Podcast. Love them. And the ARRIVE study is cited almost all the time of a 39-week induction. But there's flaws in the ARRIVE study. So take the time to ask for links to that study and read about it and really look at the evidence. So definitely ask flat out, what's your induction rate? And if you are a person that induces in a healthy pregnancy before my due date, Mm -hmm. I'd like to know what your thinking is on that. Yeah. And just get that out of the way. Yep. And then you can, if they say what their induction rate is and it's too high for, what would be too high? Would you say? Well, you know, I think if you're inducing over, you know, 25% of your OB clients Mm -hmm. for non-cause, that's already too high. That's really high. Yeah. Yeah. Agree. So there you go. That's tip number one and kind of flows into tip number two. It really does. Ask your caregiver about the risk benefit of induction of labor. I want to know if the benefit outweighs the risk where the statistics can be found. Again, I love Rebecca Decker's evidence-based birth. She has a very good article on that ARRIVE study we talked about on evidence, on low amniotic fluid, on induction, on um, old placenta, on all the reasons why you might be walking down that road. Yeah. Um, I also think perinatologists and fetal medicine doctors are out there in our community to corroborate or to diagnose problematic placentas and amniotic fluid, mm. so on and so forth. And I think it's fair to ask, I'd like to have a maternal fetal medicine consult to find out yeah. in my third trimester. Yeah. If um, I'm, I'm walking down that road. So a lot of people's like, I feel good. My blood pressure is normal. I haven't gained an excessive amount of weight. Or my diabetes, my gestational diabetes is diet controlled. Mm-hmm. I am well controlled in my numbers. I'm not on insulin. So does that automatically mean that I have to be induced? So always ask for risk benefit. Yeah. It's my favorite thing. And I think just I the simple the why. Like, why yeah. are you recommending this intervention? Yeah. And then wait for them to have a good reason. <laughs> a lot of times there's buzzwords uh, my own clients my own birth education clients I get this phone call all the time I can say it in the beginning of class and I usually get a few chuckles at least in the room or on the zoom which is let give me a give me a raised hand if your doctor said that your baby's head's measuring large I half the patients right half my mm-hmm. clients raise their hand up how about small abdominal girl oh there's a, there's mm-hmm. another one right there the buzzwords. how about uh, you're not quite meeting your milestones intrauterine growth restriction put your hand up so tell me what how much did you weigh oh I had 610 and my husband weighed 71 and um, we're both kind of small people and my family all just has small babies so we automatically hear in our head there's something wrong mm-hmm. this isn't normal 
and I'm only 33 weeks. So I always wish that the obstetricians would save that information if it's really problematic. Right. Because then what do we do when we take in that information? We start ruminating about it. Cortisol increases. And our cortisol level increases and our adrenaline and we can't relax. And now we're on high alert right. for something that isn't really yeah. happening. Yeah. Now we have intrauterine growth restricted babies who need to be totally. born. They are feeder growers. They need nutrition. The placenta is failing. There is no good. But there is that sweet spot where it's just small baby. Mm -hmm. Is it intrauterine growth restricted or is it my genetics? And this is how we roll in my family. Yep. It's the same thing for macrosomia, right? Yeah. Large for gestational oh, age. This yeah. rolls my, into another. The ultrasound yep. showed that the estimated fetal weight is over 4,000 grams. What? Like, nine it's pound like, baby? Yeah. Then you start to freak out. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. It's like, well, I'm 35 weeks. And gosh, you know, my sisters and my mom had big babies. They didn't get induced. Mm -hmm. um, how big is too big? I recently went to my unit and saw on the board excessive fetal growth. I'm putting quotes in the air for our audience. So what they did is renamed macrosomia, large baby, large for gestational age, with a new name called excessive. Now, what do we think about when we think about that word excessive? Too much. Too much. Dangerous. Right? Scary. Too much. Dangerous. Yeah. Scary. Thank you. All those words that are negative and excessive. I have an excessive fetal weight. Plus, that's based on an ultrasound. What do we know about ultrasound? 10 to 15% margin of error either way. Quite a bit of error. Yeah. Yeah. I also think to myself, you know, we have a fetal head and we take an ultrasonic measurement of the fetal head. But what happens to the head in birth? It molds. Molding. Mm -hmm. It changes shape. I always tell people to imagine turning a grapefruit into a mango <laughs> as we go through the pelvic inlet and into the pelvic outlet. And that, so what is knowing that I have a large for gestational age, according to the, whoever the person is that's taking those me right. measurements? That doesn't help. It doesn't. How did that help yeah. me at 33 weeks to start thinking about my Charlie Brown head baby? Right. right. We haven't even gotten to 39 Charlie weeks yet. Brown we, head? <laughs> you know, it's because like, that's all you get in your head. You get right. a big pumpkin oh in gosh, your head. And you're like, well, that's it. Head. I'm never going to be able to push this baby out right. because of A, B, and C. Right. So those are the other things. It's like, I, unless you think something is dangerous, doctor or midwife, so-and-so, unless I'm in imminent danger or my baby's in imminent danger, I'd like you to... Keep that information to yourself, and we could revisit that conversation at 39 weeks. Totally. Yeah, unless it's um, something that we consider dangerously low birth weight. Yep. Dangerously low birth weight. But other than that, receiving information, wow, that can really, I think, drive uh, someone's labor in a direction that we don't want to go down. Yeah. What would be yeah. your next tip? Let's talk about, like... How to um, avoid things that don't sound like they're an induction method, but they actually are. Very good. That's kind of one of my favorite <laughs> things. Um, I'm not a big fan of early rupture of membranes. If you are coming to labor and delivery and you are in labor or just having contractions, which means contractions with actually out a change in the effacement 
or dilation of your cervix. Mm-hmm. That people say, I'm in labor. I'm like, are you? <laughs> you may be have, having contractions, but you're not actually laboring. It's the latent. So you may be in yeah. prodromal yeah. latent mm-hmm. labor. Absolutely. And just want to remind everybody that Shana Brickner is an IBCLC lactation consultant, but she is also a labor and delivery nurse. <laughs> so she knows way, way more than just about lactation. So yeah, you're not really in labor. So let's rupture your bag of water. So what's the bag of water do? It protects the cord. It protects the environment in the uterus against mm-hmm. infection. And once you release that bag of water, there's no guarantee that we don't release too much artificially, yeah. which means then we have to put a catheter back into the uterus and flood the uterus with amniotic fluid. So now you have a conduit for bacteria. Woohoo! Look at there. There's something for me to just Grab climb up into to. that mm-hmm. mother's uterus, <laughs> right? And wreak havoc. So I'm not a big fan of the early rupture of membranes. What's there are, too early, would you say? Um, uh, or what's the four, early? four centimeters? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see no, I see no real benefit other than we need to speed this along right like do we need to speed and does it really speed it along yeah and does it really yeah sometimes it moves things along but a lot of times it doesn't what it does is create the spiraling effect of more intervention Mm -hmm. internal monitors amnio infusion that's the putting back of uh fluids namely normal saline back into the uterus internal monitors Mm -hmm. as that fluid escapes um, we also want to talk to your doctor about risk benefit. Is the head well applied to my cervix to minimize the amount of leakage? How much leakage of amniotic fluid would be um, more um, beneficial or less beneficial yeah. to lead me down the path of intervention? Again, ask for risk benefit. Um, is the, what station is the baby? I want, if the baby's not zero station or minus one station, I would really rather you did not. You can say no, thank you. Mm -hmm. Now, there was a study that we used to follow a lot when I was a young labor nurse called the Dublin model. And the Dublin model was a model of labor having to do with um, a non-medicated, non-epidural birth with a doula at four centimeters. There was some good evidence for rupturing the bag, moved labor along well. That's a very, very specific study, a very specific model of patients being upright and moving, not necessarily in bed with an epidural. Right. So yes, there are times when amniotic fluid, artificial rupture of membranes can be beneficial, but in very specific circumstances. Sure. Yeah. So yeah. Early, um, early Pitocin. Early Pitocin, long, thick, yep. closed. We call it's that uh, Bishop score, mm-hmm. and that is the condition of your cervix. This is all in birth class. And what's the risk benefit of this induction if I do not have, I'm putting quotes in the air, y'all, again, favorable cervix, mm-hmm. long, thick, closed, firm, not favorable, soft, mushy, right. thin. A lot of times moms come in and they say, do you think you'll be my labor nurse when I deliver? Well, if I'll be here in three days. Exactly. (laughs) And you want to find a gentle way of saying that. Right. And every now and then I have a person look at me. I wouldn't say every now and then. That was completely untrue. What's more true is a lot of patients look at me and say, what do you mean three days? What does that tell me right off the bat? 
They had no I do not education. have informed yeah, consent. No right. No education from the person delivering that information, leading right into my tip number four. Mm-hmm. Right? Make sure you understand informed consent. I said this to a patient yesterday, actually to a nurse yesterday in the nurse's station. People would spend more time researching a refrigerator than their obstetrician or their labor and delivery experience. I can can totally agree with you on that because my father-in-law needs a new refrigerator and it's been like two or three weeks. But they haven't gotten a new refrigerator. They just have like a mini fridge because they're researching the right refrigerator to get. I'm about right. That's what I mean. And I think to myself, boy, if we, if they put this much effort into talking about informed consent. So if I come into a patient's room and say, I'm going to consent you for induction of labor and just let you know that we're, we're going to start this induction with an oral medication that um, in a perfect world will lead to thinning out your cervix and may even throw you into uh, real labor. And um, this could take one or two doses, or it could take six. And you can see the patient doing the math. Well, if this is a medicine that every you give every four, four hour. hour. For six times, there's 24, 24 hours. hours. <laughs> right. So this is, wait, till tomorrow? I'm like, oh, that's just the exhausting the six doses of medication. Then we may evolve into oxytocin to finish it off, which could take another one or two days. It's like, okay, ho, 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 wait a minute. So let me, let me, are you telling me I could be here for three days? And so now I feel, I know this patient's not been informed. They have no idea what's going on. And if it's a social induction or not for good medical cause, I'm really okay with my patient saying, you know, I'm going to talk this over with my OB. I might want to go home for a few days. Of course, I'm all about it. Now, the (laughs) tricky part for all of you labor and delivery nurses out there is answering to the cascade of anger from the um, obstetricians. Not all of them, of course. Some of them, you know, my favorite answer when I deliver this information on the telephone, I was like, okay, whatever. <laughs> you know, that's fine. You know, just tell her to come to her next OB visit and we'll revisit this yeah. conversation. Great, cool, bye. I'm giving her discharge instructions. Uh-huh. Phone call over with, love it. <laughs> we had a Dr. Blumenfeld who used to go, okay. Yeah. Come to next visit. So, bye. Okay, bye. <laughs> you know, whatever. And obviously for, for non cause, for more of a social. Yeah. It's a patient's choice. Um, and uh, be able to advocate. Part of my job is advocacy mm-hmm. and informing my patient. So, labor and delivery nurses who are fearful of the barrage of um, disappointment or anger or accusations have to be able to say, I'm here to advocate for my patient, to give her informed consent, to inform her of the risk benefit. That is part of my nursing job. And she's decided she'd like to have another conversation with you about it. That's all. I think it's important. Yeah. So we know informed consent is super important. Do I have available alternatives? What's the risk? Uh, What's the risk of refusing this procedure? Um, Share with me the benefits of the procedure. Explain how many days I can wait before Mm -hmm. I think about doing this again. Yeah, most of the time the risk is, oh, you're just going to keep being pregnant. Great. (laughs) That's the risk that I'm willing to take. I can, you know, have more. When When I talk to people in class about that very thing about 
Like, there's humanity involved in this. Before I have a patient who's got such bad sciatica, she can barely walk. She's concerned about, you know, losing um, sensation permanently in her foot, or she is got terrible migraines or carpal tunnel syndrome where she's losing function. These are also, these are also reasons. Sure. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. There, there's humanity involved. Yeah. I mean, I've had some people just say, I'm terrified. I don't want to be pregnant anymore. I've had a friend or a sister who's had a loss. I, yeah. I just, I can't stand anymore. Like, there, and there's no, as I'm not going to. as they are informed about what it absolutely. entails, great, absolutely. you made your choice. Like, yeah. I get it. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. I just don't want you to think that I'm feeling so rigid about this that you can never go in any right. direction. Right. But um, talking about the, the well mom yes. who's low risk, you know, you should be able to hit your due date plus a week yeah. and revisit that conversation, yeah. provided that you have a decent amount of amniotic fluid and your placenta and blood pressure yeah. are in good shape. Oh, yeah. That leads 100%. into your, your last tip about remembering that due dates are not uh, exact. Like, this is your expiration date. Thank you, you know? Sheena. Where is that piece of granite <laughs> that says that wheel is correct? Right. That is an outdated mode. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We know that we're pregnant plus or minus. I remember my obstetrician said, Lizzie, you are a couple of weeks more pregnant than you think you are. I know perfectly well because I circled the weekend that I got pregnant. I timed this out to the second and I'm like, OK, this is it. Boom. Pregnant. Mm-hmm. OK. So finally, I just said, fine, have it your way. I just wasn't invested in the argument about it. It's like whatever that wheel says or whatever. you. It's like, OK, whatever. So what if it was? I always think it's funny when, well, funny slash irritating, you know me. I have to use my poker face in class when someone said, oh, I just had my due date moved two days. Right. And I'm like, why even know that information? Right? Yeah. Oh, we're moving your due date because of the ultrasound. The ultrasound said this bigger, baby's a little bit bigger, so you must be more pregnant. Or this baby is smaller, so we're going to call you post dates if you hit, right? Yeah. So yeah. I, I always wonder, like, what's that about? Mm-hmm. We are not, we are not um, to be, you know, that invested in moving due dates up three days, down three days. I don't, again, more information to make us ruminate and be concerned, that vocabulary. Right. So we know that, I believe that there is an overuse of third trimester ultrasound, mm. right? And um, Weight and size estimates, as we know, can be off by 10 to 15%. That's quite a bit of error, sometimes 20%. And um, they're guest dates, not due dates. 40 weeks in a day is not post dates. And that's much more closer to 41. We know that um, back in the day, I saw much more meconium, worse fetal outcomes at 42, 43, Mm. 44 weeks. Wow, you had but 44 weeks. Pre- I've never we seen did. a We did. We did. We saw a lot more meconium, more meconium aspiration, more shoulder dystocia, yeah. more C-sections. Sure. Yes, I'm going to absolutely. Now they're, they're just that. inducing before right. they get to that but point. 41 weeks, can't we just get a little bit right. into the margin of error yeah. for our due date and our date of conception? People have wonky periods, wonky yep. cycles. Um, again, ultrasounds are better in the very first weeks, the very first trimester at predicting due date than later. Mm. So look at your 
first trimester ultrasound and then leave it alone. You know, there's no really good evidence about doing multiple ultrasounds. And there are obstetricians that do ultrasounds every visit. And that does not improve morbidity and mortality. Right. Right. I think there's it does, no, yeah, to know all the yeah. things, but. Right. What is to, that really to, to measure every time. telling us? Some people tell me, you know what? I went to my obstetrician. She does a tape measure. She measures. I'm making good fetal growth. I'm hitting my milestones. I got a confirming ultrasound for um, position, meaning head down, not breach. And after that, we'll see ya. Yeah, bye. That's all you need. <laughs> bye. Yeah. Right? Now, if you are a person that's getting ginormous, What's ginormous? Well, we know over 4,000 grams, 4,500 grams consistently moving in that direction and hitting that milestone. Hmm. That might be, that might be um, a good reason to induce. Liz, I want to know if, Unless that's if how you've you roll. seen this yeah. um, in, your, in your practice, in your years yeah, of yes. experience. Have <laughs> I'm just going to say yes. <laughs> have you seen like people that, they don't look like they have a huge baby in their belly. Right. And mm-hmm. then they give birth and they're like, oh, my baby is nine and a half pounds. And I had no yep. clue. And quite the opposite. And quite the opposite. Yeah. I know hundreds, because at this point, I've probably taken care of a few thousand mm-hmm. deliveries. Done quite a few myself. Don't know what's coming out. Doctor's not going to make it. Right. Okay. We're just going to, she's, look at that abdomen. Mm, seven, eight. Yep. I'm like, okay. So when we look at the pelvis, we're just seeing the outside of a woman who has a pelvis inside of her body, mm-hmm. part of her <laughs> skeletal system. Yes. We don't know what the pelvic inlet or the size and shape of that woman. Mm. Right? So babies who are deep in the bowl in the pelvic inlet yeah. may not look as big as babies who are overriding yes. the pelvis who are high and have not dropped or engaged into the pelvis. So you can't look at the person standing next to you and go, oh, she's having a huge baby because she may be having a baby who's six pounds, Uh 15 ounces. I think it also depends on the length of the torso and all of those things. Like I always carried five foot three. Yep. And my babies were, it looked, I mean, I remember people saying to me, oh, it looks like you're about to pop, but I'm 4'11". And like, there's nowhere else for this baby to go. And I have a short torso and short legs. Like, everything is small. Me too. (laughs) Absolutely. Like, oh, Liz, my God. Yeah. Is he going to be nine pounds? Seven, one. Right. (laughs) Yeah, I had my first was six pounds. My second was seven, seven. And I did feel bigger with my second. He was seven, seven. Both of my first and my second were born at 37 and the 37 week. Mark. Right. And then my third baby was 39 and five. And you would think, oh my gosh, he's going to be so much bigger. Nope. He was one nope. ounce more than my second. Right. He was seven pounds, eight ounces. Right. Big, big, Who huge. Would have guessed. Like, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so the most important thing is communication yes. with your caregiver. That's and yes, to 100%. talk about these in birth class. Have a person that you can talk to about the risk benefit, about statistics, evidence based birth yep. statistics yep. are important and make sure that you're educators. You can't really always get that from videos um, and uh, 
having a touchstone, somebody who's willing to sit and talk to you. If yes. you're feeling rushed out of the office and you're not getting the information you need, let's face it, I feel bad for the obstetricians off in this community all over. Um, probably in your city, wherever you are, you might get 15 minutes and you might get mm. six, seven minutes of visit, yeah. maybe 10 minutes in your obstetri- uh, you know, obstetrical visits. And you should have um, a touchstone and somebody you can rely on yes. for good evidence. But remember, plenty of good medical reasons to induce. Choose a doctor or midwife with a low induction rate. Ask your caregiver about risk benefits of everything, especially things like Pitocin, Cytotec, early rupture of membranes. Learn about what a Bishop score is. Know what cervical effacement dilation and station is that helps you get a visual of where your baby is and if you're starting from a favorable place or an unfavorable place and uh talk about that third trimester ultrasound yep with your obstetrician and remember due dates are not exact they are guest dates that's right well thank you so much this was so helpful i think short and sweet yeah for our audience (laughs) to know that like they can avoid induction that's going to help them avoid all those interventions like in our previous yeah episode about um how to have a low intervention birth number one avoid being induced if you can of course if you can um so we hope this was helpful for you and thanks liz for sharing your knowledge and again you can reach out to liz at birth and beyond through email or um her website i'll put those links in the show notes and utilize liz as your resource she's gonna help you along your birth journey so you don't have to be floundering around what do i do what does what does this mean (laughs) ask someone who knows so absolutely yeah thanks for listening guys this is fun yep awesome bye you guys Thank you for listening to this episode of the Birth Nurses Podcast. If you enjoyed this, there are a few ways you can support us. First, you can share this podcast with your pregnant friends or new moms. Secondly, you can write a review and rate us on iTunes. And thirdly, we would love if you would check out our Instagram accounts and websites. I'm on Instagram as Preparented and online www.preparented.com. And Liz is on Instagram as birthnurseliz and her website is birthandbeyond.net. Thanks for listening.